a few minutes to yeah. just uh, let no, a few more people come? It's 12 o'clock, so. You want to start until then? I got three people here. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay. All right. So, uh, welcome to the November session of the 2014 Geriatric Mental Health Series, End of Life Choices, presented by Dr. Daniel Stadler. Dr. Stadler was kind enough to uh, step in as a presenter when our original presenter had a conflict, so thank you very much. The Northern New England Geriatric Education Center and its activities are funded by the Health Resources and Services Administration, also known as HRSA. Uh, this funding allows us to offer this program to you at no charge. Our work is to enhance the care of older adults by offering a, a comprehensive interdisciplinary education program targeted to the healthcare uh, workforce. We emphasize evidence-based best practices in geriatric care. In order for you to receive educational credit for this program, you must be signed in legibly, please. So be sure that you sign the attendance sheet um, if you are at a remote site. If, if we cannot read your handwriting, we cannot award your credit. If you are watching online, you need to complete a form online very soon after the program. So email geriatric.ed at dartmouth.edu. Uh, let me repeat that, geriatric.ed at dartmouth.edu. Geriatric.ed. Okay, G-E-R-I-A-T-R-I-C dot E-D at D-A-R-T-M-O-U-T-H dot E-D-U. Um, so, if, and if you need, you need to do this today, and if you need the link to this form, um, you can call also 603-653-3443. Finally, um, you should have received a form that tells you how to obtain your continuing education credits, contact hours online. Be sure to keep this sheet so you can refer to it later. If you have cell phones, please silence them now if you haven't already. And the remote sites, please, if your audio, uh, your audio should be muted. If you have a question during the presentation, please unmute your audio and get the speaker's attention by raising your hand or waving your hand. Um, and none of the planning committee members for the series, including today's speaker, have any influencing financial relationships to disclose, and there will be no off-label uses discussed. Um, Dr. Daniel Stadler is a geriatrician who received his postdoctoral training in internal medicine primary care at the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in 2001. He received certification by the American Board of Internal Medicine in 2001 and 2011, and by the American Board of Hospice and Palliative Care in 2005 and 2012. He is currently on the faculty as an assistant professor in internal medicine at the Geisel School of Medicine. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> um, it would help me before we start to just know who my audience is. Can you hear me out there? Just raise your hand or say some nod. Okay. Yeah. You can yeah, we hear agree. me? We agree. Great. Terrific. So if we could just go around, maybe we'll start with the folks at, at the remote site. Just mute yourself. Why don't we talk to the, the woman in the lavender uh, uh, jacket, could you just tell us who you are and where you are and what you, yeah. Absolutely. My name is Sandra Driscoll. I'm a clinical nurse specialist. I work at Centers for Living and Rehabilitation at Southwestern Vermont Healthcare. And where are you right now? I am in the hospital at SVMC. Got it. Thank you. And who's the person sitting across the table from I'm Susan Robbins. I'm the director of the emergency department and medical surgical nursing at Southern Vermont Hospital, Southwestern Vermont Hospital, and we're in Bennington. Got it. Okay. And then the gentleman in the at, at, at the table, or I think that's, that's Cindy. That's Cindy. I can't see the person at the far back. That's Cindy. Cindy. Sorry, Cindy. me. <laughs> You're far away from us. <laughs> yes, I'm the program coordinator at the NNEGEC. -E I help Laura set up the programming. Got it. And where are you now? I'm up at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Oh, okay. And you are a program coordinator. What's your... Uh, uh, For the Geriatric Education Center. Is she a yeah. nurse or a... No, she's a, uh, an educator. Yeah. Coordinator. Got it. Okay. And then we're moving over to the folks in the room with the books in the background. Yeah, hi, my name's Carrie Way. I'm a registered nurse and the palliative care coordinator here at Littleton Regional Healthcare. Got it. And who else is in the room? Um, 
I'm Rebecca Blake, the medical social worker and uh, discharge planner here for the hospital at Littleton. Great. And I'm Ann Connor. I'm just the video person here. There's no just most important one. <laughs> you are the most important person. Okay, and we have we have four folks here sitting uh, here at Dartmouth at the Centers for Health and Aging. Can you just tell us who you are? Okay, I'll start. I'm the resource specialist at the Aging Resource Center. And your Shizuko. name is Shizuko. Sorry. Shizuko. Yep. I'm uh, Linnell Jalowick, and I'm the resource specialist in Dartmouth Hitchcock Cancer Center. In Alan Dietrich, retired family physician here at Dartmouth. Terrific. I'm Bernie Seifert, a social worker, and I work at the Geriatric Education Center. Good. And there are uh, others that we are not going to be able to connect with who are streaming in on their computer. So they can hear me, but they, they can can't hear you and ask see questions. You. That's right. Got it. Well, whoever you are, hello. <laughs> um, so to begin with, I'm, I'm, uh, can you see my slides? Uh, no. Can get the presentation back up. Okay, there we go. Got it. Okay. So, what I'm going to be talking about today is something called rational suicide. It is not a great term. It's not my favorite term. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, this is the first time I've given this talk in this format. Uh, we're going to be talking about some, a number of issues which are delicate. We're going to be talking about issues for which there are no clear answers or clear interventions. It's really um, uh, about having the right knowledge, the right sensitivities, the right skill set, and then adapting that to the circumstance. The reason I bring that up is that typically when I do this, we have a little bit of a conversation, and we're going to try to do that as best as possible in this format. But I haven't done it before, and we'll see uh, if it works. Um, I want to talk a little bit before we start about um, the, the, how we're going to structure this and then make a few comments. Um, what, what we're going to talk about is rational suicide. That is the concept that there are times when people uh, feel the desire to end their life and that is not a pathological decision. Typically when we think about suicide, we think about um, depression, we think about mental illness and we think about a suicide. Uh, or thoughts of suicide as a manifestation of that illness. Um, but the concept is that there are individuals, and I think if you've been around geriatrics for any time frame, um, you know that there are individuals who think about that in a way that is not necessarily pathological. They feel that the burdens of their illness uh, are outweigh the benefits of living longer, and they would make some, have some thoughts or choices to make. And so we're going to talk about those circumstances. Um, I'm not crazy about the word rational, right? Um, and because it's not necessarily that the opposite is irrational, the thought is really that it is non-pathological. And really what we're talking about is the desire to die, right? And the situations in which the desire to die might be um, appropriate, consistent with the individual's values, and not something that we need to pathologize, not something that we necessarily need to call in assistance for, per se. We're going to be talking today specifically about the desire today, a desire to die in a medical setting. So I'm not talking about someone who is going on a hunger strike for political purposes, right? Um, or someone who uh, burns themselves in the Vietnam War to protest the war. That is a different scenario. That is a form of rational suicide. It is not born out of a pathology necessarily. It is born out of a desire to make a political statement. But that's not what we're going to talk about. Um, we're going to talk about a variety of cases. These are real people, people that I've treated. And, and in the context of those cases, I want to have some conversations with folks about what you think, what would be the best way to intervene, what would be the best steps to take. And we'll go case by case in the different ways that, quote, rational suicide uh, can manifest itself, and try over the course of the conversation to put together a list of the things to think about and the ways to intervene when someone comes to you 
with a request or thoughts about hastening their end of life when you think that it is not, and how you would evaluate whether it is or is not pathological. So we're going to go through a series of cases, and at the end we're going to try to identify um, some skill sets that we can work on. One more statement. Um, this is a sensitive topic. This is a topic that deals with people feeling a great sense of despair and loss. And um, I hope I have not offended people, but I have put in some slides here which are humorous, uh, which make uh, a little light of, this, of, this issue, of the question of suicide. I do that very consciously. Um, I, I am a big believer uh, that dark humor is one of the ways that we as providers cope uh, with dealing with this. It is a way that we can stay centered. Um, I'm hoping I haven't offended anybody. If I have, please let me know. I don't think I will, but I just want to make that statement up front. Uh, so this is the, this is the, uh, the bunny that you're going to see who's going to uh, come back throughout these, the talk. Uh, and he will come up with a variety of inventive ways uh, to in end his life. He's extremely intent on doing this, and uh, you'll see how we do. <laughs> so before we start, I'd like to just start with a, a definition. So suicide, now these definitions are um, not written in stone. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a lot about definitions over the course of today. Um, there are medical definitions, there are uh, definitions in the ethical literature, there are definitions in Webster's Dictionary, and then there are definitions in multiple different dictionaries um, that are not always the same, um, which lends itself to some confusion at times. Um, so we'll address that. But I wanted to start with the, the, the definition of suicide as you most co commonly see it, and that is the act of intentionally taking one's own life. Now, I emphasize the word act because typically we speak about suicide as an act, not a neglect of behavior, not a withdrawal. So generally, if someone, for instance, elects to remove a ventilator or stop a life-prolonging medication, we do not consider, consider that a suicide. We consider that a withdrawal of an intervention. Whereas someone takes pills or holds a gun to themselves or jumps off a bridge, we consider that suicide. That is not entirely unanimous. There are people that believe that any state, any gesture that a person takes with the intention of ending their own life um, is, a, is a form of suicide. When we think about factors that are associated with pathological or irrational suicide, we think of a variety of things. And this isn't a kind of atom up and it is or it isn't. It's a general uh, way we think about it. But typically, if it is born out of a psychiatric illness, if an individual is actively depressed and through that depression and the suffering that they are enduring is due to depression and the desire to end their life is a manifestation of that depression or that anxiety, um, then we think this is more likely a pathological process. This is a big one if it is inconsistent with the person's known values. Right? So if generally uh, they are a, a person who's looking out for others, looking out for family members, looking out for their uh, loved ones, and you discuss with them that, 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 that an act of suicide would have damage would, would impact their children, their grandchildren, and who knows uh, who would come down, down the, the, the road in the coming generations. And that is immaterial. That is inconsistent with their values. It would raise your suspicions. Right? Um, if, however, they've been a person who says, I need to be functional, I need to be part of society, that is what makes my life worth living. And I've been that way my whole life. And now I'm sitting in a chair watching uh, just looking out a window and I am useless. I am useless and I have no sense of meaning. That might be more consistent with their values and so you would think that might make, be, lead you more on the side that this is a rational act. Is there a reasonable chance of improvement? If there is and someone still feels that they want to end their own life, that's, that's um, a sign that you really want to think seriously that this may be a pathological process. Is it active rather than passive? 
So we talked a little bit about that. Is it a gesture of withdrawal of something? Or is it something that they're actively doing? And is it a direct cause and effect? Does, would the act that they're considering lead immediately to death? Or is it somehow protracted? The more separate the act is from the event, the more we tend to think it's less likely to be pathological. The closer, the more we think it would be pathological. Is it violent? Certainly violence is something that makes us think this is a pathological process. If it's peaceful, if it's looking to be painless, if it's looking to support uh, family members and loved ones, if it's explicit, that's another one I should have put there. Explicit um, is very much a, 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 a sign that this, a, 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 another clue that this may not be a pathological process. Typically, if you're talking about it, it's to some degree explicit because somebody's saying something. Is it abrupt? Right? Are they looking to do something quick? Um, or is this something that they've thought out about? Does death result directly from the act taken? I talked about that. And is the primary intention to shorten life, or is it something else? Is the primary intention to relieve suffering? Right? And a lot is written in the medical ethical literature about the intent of an act. And sometimes it can seem like we're threading the needle uh, to, to, or parsing hairs to try to make distinctions, but really the intention does matter a great deal uh, when we think about things. Is that relatively clear to sort of how we think about what is or is not pathological when we're talking about suicidality? Okay. <laughs> so this is our first case. Um, and I will read it. This is a real individual. This is not his photograph, um, but it looks a little like him. Could be. So JB is a retired history professor. He's 76 and has had Parkinson's disease for the past 10 years. He's alert and oriented and has a dry sense of humor. He speaks in slow, brief sentences with few words. He can only walk short distances with a walker. He's fallen numerous times in recent months. He lives with his wife, who is his primary caregiver. She helps him bathe, dress, and toilet, and she accompanies him when he walks any distance. He's able to feed himself, albeit slowly, and his weight has been stable. Once or twice a week, he and his wife go out for rides or visit friends and family. He enjoys watching the news, playing bridge, listening to books on tape, and arguing with Republicans over politics. <laughs> he really did like to do that. <laughs> he comes to see you in your office, and he asks that his wife stay in the waiting room. He tells you that he sees only worsening debility ahead, and he wants to avoid it. What's more, he feels that his wife is beginning to feel overwhelmed with his care, and her life has become miserable. He tells you that he wants to die and asks if you will administer some kind of an injection which will end his life. So, these are the questions I'd like to just sort of consider as a group. Would this be suicide? Is this pathological? How would you try to determine that? Is this legal? And then, once you've sort of answered those questions, what would be your next steps? So let's start with the first one. Would this be suicide? Thoughts? I think so. I think so. So why do you think so? Uh, because he would be, there would, there would be an act mm -hmm. to end his life mm -hmm. um, sooner than what would naturally happen if mm -hmm. he would. Mm -hmm. not have that act happen. Mm -hmm. I think if he gave himself the injection, it would be physician-assisted suicide. Mm -hmm. if you provide, you or the physician provided the mm -hmm. means. Mm -hmm. If the physician gave the injection, which I think is what he asked, mm -hmm. I think it could be considered murder. Mm -hmm. Could be. Mm -hmm. it depends where you are. Mm -hmm. Anybody else with thoughts? Would this be suicide? I would, I would say it would be suicide also because, you know, he had a meaningful life before. He still goes out and enjoys, you know, time with family and friends. And um, 
you know, has some sort of meaning in his life with his wife, it seems like. So it could just be a situational um, uh, feeling that he's having. So but I guess you'd have to rule out whether he's in going through some sort of depression. Right. Um, right. And it's clearly not legal in the state to give him an injection. Uh-huh. But so you think this is suicide or is not suicide? I would say it is suicide. Uh-huh. That he would be proposing wanting to, yeah, kill himself, I would say. Right. Uh, Anybody else with thoughts? Is this pathological? What do you think? And what would you need to know to make those that kind of decision if you don't have enough information? I'd like to Dan. screen him for depression. Uh-huh. Yeah? Dan, hi. Um, I was thinking it would be really hey, helpful Peggy. to talk Hello, hello. <laughs> I was thinking it would be really helpful to talk to that wife to get that perspective yep. because what he's telling you and what she may tell you may be exactly the same or it may be quite different and would help tease out some of these things. Uh -huh. So for me, that would help to determine was it suicide and was it pathological. So you're saying you need, you need more information to find out if this is pathological and one of the questions would be, um, is he depressed? And we might do some screening, we might ask some questions, we might ask people who are around him, um, is he seeming depressed? Is this consistent with the, the person that you've known all your life? Is this coming out of the blue? Or is this something that you've talked about? Um, right. So any other thoughts on, on, I think it's clear we don't know if this is pathological. We don't have enough information. We know he has some pleasure in his life. We know he's alert and clear-headed, right? He seems to be making some good sense. And we know that there's some reason behind what he's saying, but we don't know a lot of other things about whether he's depressed. We don't know about the course of his illness necessarily. Is this reversible or not? We don't know about what his family members are saying. So we know that um, he doesn't want the wife to come into the room now right. for this discussion, but mm -hmm. do we know if he's had any discussion about thinking about this with his wife before? I think we would want to very much ask this question. And one of the things that we'll talk about when, whenever anyone asks you to hasten death and you're thinking that this might be a, a reasonable possibility, is expand the circle. Expand the circle to include family, friends, and as many caregivers and other clinicians as you think uh, necessary. And you do that for all of the reasons we described. We, you do that because you want to make sure um, that you're dealing with something that is consistent with with what other people's perceptions are, that you're not dealing with an outlier. Can I ask you a question? Hold on one second and then yes, absolutely. You expand the circle though uh, because you need to remember that you are not just treating an individual. You are treating a family and the repercussions to this event are huge. And so whether or not this is rational for them, you want to make sure that your family it understands the decision and doesn't isn't burdened with the death, and you want to do it quite frankly as, as a self-protective device. This, these are contentious issues, these are um, licensing issues, and so the more other professionals and other people who hear what you say and document it, the better. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. What was your question? That's, a, that's, a, that's okay, just you know sometimes how people are difficult with wanting other people to know um, or giving consent for sharing their you know, feelings with a broader group of folks in the family. I mean, what if they wouldn't give consent for that? Well, generally, especially if they're asking for my help, then I say, um, I am willing to engage in this conversation with you, but here's what I need, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I need to do these things to make sure that you're clear-headed. I need to take these steps to make sure that your family supports it. I need to wait some time and hear you say it again, two weeks, one month, I don't know, however long I feel is necessary to feel that this is a consistent, uh, prolonged uh, um, desire of yours. And if you can't give me those things, that's fine, but then I'm not going to provide you with, with the help that you're asking. That would be one of my 
things of getting more information from him is when did he start thinking about this uh -huh. and what were his previous thoughts about it. Right. Right. I think right. that would be important to know. And many times you find people with chronic debilitating diseases have been thinking about this for a while. Mm -hmm. Maybe not now, but there will come a time when I can't fill in the blank. Or at an earlier time in their life when they had some other difficult situation, did they think about it then and obviously decided not to, and what were those circumstances? Exactly. Is this legal? Would it be legal for a physician to administer medication uh, to end the life of another individual. Doesn't it depend on the state where you are? No, it is illegal, okay? This is illegal, this, this is euthanasia, right? And euthanasia, at least in the United States, is illegal. It is illegal to administer medication whose intent is to end the life of another person. So euthanasia is the intentional killing of a person at that person's voluntary and competent request, typically by the administration of drugs and for reasons of mercy. The distinction between murder and euthanasia is simply that it is at the person's voluntary request. People don't usually ask to be murdered. If they do, then we call it euthanasia, especially when we're in the setting of uh, severe illness and a feeling of mercy. But it is, it is not, that's not a legal act. And the main reason is the intention. The intention is not to relieve suffering. The intention is to end life. Even in the state of Oregon? Even in the state of Oregon. We'll talk about that in a minute. That what, what is legal in the states of Oregon, Washington, and Vermont is physician-assisted suicide different, okay? This is euthanasia, this is different. Okay, so what we've said is we're going to talk with him, we're going to assess for depression, we're going to get his family involved, uh, we're going to get other providers involved, uh, we might look into his history. Is there a psychiatric history here? Other thoughts that we would do before we move on to the next case? When we talk about other providers, I would also include in that other, like social services, so that, you know, he may not, may not be clinically depressed, but there are definitely some adjustment issues there, and maybe something can be put in place to help him with those adjustments. Exactly. And I would say a lot of his burden um, is the feeling that he is a burden on his wife, right? This is a very common thing we see, and so the supports <coughs> for him are one thing, but we would also want to look at how can we help her be less burdened and help him perceive her as less burdened. Okay. <laughs> I hope you don't find this distasteful. <laughs> All right, so this is our second case. So this is MK. She is a retired nurse, 79. She has congestive heart failure, which has been steadily worsening over the past two years. She lives at home with her husband. Her three sons live nearby with their families. She wears oxygen at all times. She walks short distances with a cane, and she drives around town. She's very careful about her salt intake. She adjusts her diuretics daily according to her weight. She's meticulous. This is a meticulous nurse with regard to her own health care. She's been hospitalized twice in the past 12 months. She and her husband enjoy going out to restaurants and watching series on cable television. They really like Homeland. Uh, they talk to me about how much fun it is. These are, this is a, a very vital woman despite, uh, despite her illness. She tells you that her life is good and enjoyable, but she sees that it is steadily worsening, and she is more and more frail. She says she is frightened of becoming totally dependent on her family for care and does not want to have to depend on others to walk, cook, get out, toilet herself, or bathe. She asks you if you will prescribe something for her to have on hand to take matters into her own hands if there comes a time when she cannot get by on her own. 
Okay? So, would this be suicide? Thoughts? Actually, if, if the pills were available and she actually would take the pills, then. So this would be suicide. The previous case would not be because the person who administers the medication is not the individual. Suicide must be self-administered. So that is euthanasia because it's voluntary. If it were involuntary, it would be considered murder. This, on this case, this is the individual takes the medication, puts them to her own mouth, and takes them. That is considered suicide. This is physician-assisted suicide because a physician has provided the means, right, uh, but not administered the medication. Just an important distinction, physician-assisted suicide means that, the, that the, the medication is provided by the individual. It is not information. There is open access to information. There is no limit on what information we can provide. So we can tell people that if you took X amount of a certain drug, that would be enough to kill you. And if you took less, it wouldn't. That is a legal act that is not considered physician-assisted suicide. I would be cautious about doing it, mm -hmm. but it is not an illegal. It is not an illegal act or something that, about which the state uh, speaks. It would open ability to communicate. But the provision of a medication for the purposes of committing suicide is considered physician-assisted suicide, and in most states in the country, it is not legal. So that's either writing the prescription or handing them the bottle. Yes. Pills. Exactly, exactly. Is her desire pathological? Not yet. <laughs> what do you think? I guess same, same story as the last one. Mm -hmm. You have to screen out other unknown mm -hmm. elements. Mm -hmm. like, is she depressed or what made her think that way. Mm -hmm. You have to know more information. Mm -hmm. Is this different than the other case in any way that you can think of? For obviously, it's, there seems to be more anxiety in this than mm -hmm. depression because it's the sense of control and the sense of have, you know, needing that panic button. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, seems That seems more of what's causing her to make that plan rather than feeling like um, like she's not in control at all. But she's mm -hmm. a, for the fear of not being controlled. So you'd want to assess yeah. what is going on. Is it truly an anxiety, I don't want to be out of control? Or is it a feeling that, just as she said, if there comes a point in my life when I can't do these things, I would, I would feel that the burdens of my illness are greater than the, than the benefit. I would say that I am less concerned about MK than I am about JB. And that isn't to say that I have made a decision one way or the other, but the fact that she says, I like my life, it is full, it is rich, I want to keep living, I am thinking ahead. Uh, in other words, this is not an abrupt act. This is more in the protracted. The, the, the planning ahead speaks, speaks of some rationality, some order, some ordered thinking, just, just makes me feel less concerned. Again, no answers. I, I still want to do the same sorts of things, want to include the family, want to include other providers, want to screen for illness, um, want to maximize supports, want to maximize palliative services, want to change everything I can to make her life as good as possible. Is this legal? Okay, so this, as we said, is not legal in 47 states and under very certain circumstances is legal. So this is physician-assisted suicide, which is the provision of medication by a physician to a patient in response to the patient's voluntary and competent request in order to assist the patient to commit suicide by self-administration of the medication. The intention is to kill oneself. The procedure is to self-administer the lethal drug. 
and the successful outcome is immediate death. This, I'm not sure, is suicide. This is neglect. This is not an act. This is absent-mindedness. Or... Savoring the vacation. I don't know what this is. <laughs> okay, so this is, this is the Death with Dignity Act, which is the name of the physician-assisted suicide law in the state of Vermont. It's very, very, very similar laws in Oregon and Washington. They were mimicked on each other. So, in the state of Vermont and Washington and Oregon, if a patient is, must be 18 years or older to participate, this does not involve children, they must have a six-month prognosis. So the Death with Dignity Act does not apply to anyone who thinks that they want to kill themselves. They must be someone facing a terminal illness and be in the last stages of that disease. There must be a verbal request and there must be a written request. Those requests need to be at least 14 days apart, so it speaks to that what we said about consistency. Um, the patient must have capacity, and that must be documented, and the patient must be able to self-administer the medication. They cannot be dependent on anyone else to take it. Two physicians must confirm both capacity and prognosis. It can be two different physicians for prognosis. It's usually the primary physician, and then you, would, you might consult. So you might consult a psychiatrist for capacity, and an oncologist, say, or a cardiologist for prognosis, or it could be the two same, depending. You must have the alternatives that must be explained and documented, and there must be a, at least a 48-hour waiting period between the time that the prescription is written and the time that it is filled. What's, what's again, it's all about that's 14 days, say it again, here's a prescription, nothing impulsive. Do you still feel this way? Confirm, confirm, confirm. I will say that this law made a great deal of press. It makes a lot of controversy. It makes people quite upset on both sides of the fence. Um, it impacts in Oregon and in Washington, and as yet no one in Vermont, very, very few people. The numbers of people who have this disease are able, a serious illness in the last stages, are able to self-administer, are cognitively intact enough to do this, and do not have something that we could withdraw, which would bring about the election, are very, very, very few. Most people simply cannot part participate or benefit or uh, whatever the verb you would use. This is not a, a law which will impact a lot of people. So this is a very complicated issue uh, because what if you live in another state mm -hmm. Sorry. and you know you can get it in um, one of these th three states that you, you've identified? You must be a le I should have said it. You must be a legal resident of that state. Okay. And the provider must be a licensed physician in that state. And I would think it would actually, for somebody who is going to meet all of those, they would need to have that action taken sooner than they might want in order to, to meet all of these requirements. Mm -hmm. They might individually prefer to have it closer to the time. natural end of life, but they won't meet the capacity. But they can't go too early out because they have to be six-month prognosis. Right, so there's a very small window, actually. Mm -hmm. So MK might not fall under this. Right. MK probably would not because I don't think MK has a six-month prognosis. Right. It's interesting. And does it have to be a physician? Um, it cannot be an, um, a nurse practitioner? In this case, it must be a physician. And the corroborating must be a physician as well. Okay. It's not called provider-assisted suicide. It is called physician-assisted suicide. Questions about this? Can I ask a um, question about the prescription? Sure. I just wanted to know, after somebody fills the prescription for, uh, I think it's barbiturates or whatever, whatever it is yep. the woman in Oregon use, but like if they filled it, um, how is it okay if they like decided to do this six months later, or do you have and to like just, 
have like an idea or a plan of when we're doing this based on your prescription? Uh, generally, and this would be true for all of them, you would want to be very, very explicit about the plan. And if someone changes the plan or does something that's not consistent, you might intervene and take steps to withdraw it. But the law states that the prescription cannot be filled. The pharmacist cannot fill the prescription until 48 hours after it's been written. When the individual chooses to take that medication is not explicitly stated in the law. Okay. I mean, most of the prescriptions would expire if they weren't filled. So the individual would have to fill it and then keep it on hand. Shall I move on? Okay, this is LB. Again, not her, but sort of looks like her. So LB is a painter. She's 88 years old, and she lives by herself on a small farm. She's fiercely independent. She has never married and has no children, but has many nieces and nephews with whom she's close. Her home is full of portraits she has painted of her extended family. She grows her own vegetables and hauls her own wood to feed her wood stove. She continues to paint regularly and describes her life both in the past and in the present as full and meaningful. She says that she never wants to leave her home or depend on anyone to help her get around or take care of her body. She tells you that she has been stockpiling narcotics gradually over the years and that she now has more than enough to kill herself when and if the time comes that she's not able to get around her property or care for herself. Would this be suicide? Somebody out there talking? I would say yes. Uh-huh. Why would you say yes? Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's some forethought into stockpiling the prescription narcotics, but I don't know. It's That's kind of a tough one. <laughs> well, let's go back to the the definition, the act of intentionally taking one's own life. She taking her own life with the intention of ending her life. Is that what this is doing? Yes. Yes. It seems to me it is, right? She has the medicine. She takes the medicine. The intention of taking the medicine is to end her life. So I would say, yes, this is suicide. Is it pathological? Sounds pretty planned. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Deliberate. Does she seem depressed? Not at all. I mean, she really doesn't, right? Is it consistent with her values? Yeah. Right? Fiercely independent all her life. Don't want anybody fussing with me. And if I have to. I'm happy, I'm living my life now, but when there comes a time when I can't do what I've been able to do in my long life, is it legal? Yeah, because she's doing it, she's not getting the medications uh, as a prescription. I mean, it, she's stockpiling her own medication. Mm -hmm. There's no technical law unless there's a law, there used to be laws against suicide on the books. Some states, they still exist. I miss why she's telling her doctor this. Yeah, so in actual yeah. fact, this I, I changed the story a little bit. So she was so rational and so interested in the well-being of all of us that she told no one until she did it. And the day she did it, she sent a letter in the mail to all of her loved ones and, and physicians and, and clinicians explaining what she did and by the time we got the letter, she was dead. Wow. But she did not want to put anybody in harm's way by, re by revealing the medication, but by revealing her intention. So this is true. This is what we call rational suicide, right? Um, what happened here? Oh my goodness. So uh, I'm missing some things on the side, but this is rational suicide. 
This is a person who uh, plans consistently with their own thoughts and wishes the act of taking their own life without the dependence on anyone else, right? And it is purely out of the, completely consistent with their values, their intentions, and their wishes. It is very rare. It is most typical in individuals who are um, very independent, who dance to their own drummer, um, who uh, often have lived somewhat eccentric lives or lives far from the mainstream. Um, uh, and you see it occasionally. And, see it occasionally. and she must have been um, very smart to, to pick the right stuff she, to do the job yep, yeah. when she wanted to do it. Yep. And she also did it in a very caring way. She did it watching out for her loved ones, her providers. I do not want you to think that I did this from an act of despair. I don't want you to think that I did this in any way to hurt anyone. I did not want to cause trouble for anyone. I've been thinking about this for a very long time. And when you think of suicide prevention, I mean, I'm not sure how this could have been prevented. Couldn't have. Yeah, but no, would you, I mean, there were no signs. is there reason to prevent it, right? right. I mean, per, perhaps there's deep despair and depression that we could treat, but I sure didn't see any sign of that. If she had had a discussion with you the week before or the month before, it would be a different story in terms of your responsibility with the knowledge? With the knowledge, I would have needed to take more steps yeah. to evaluate her for psychiatric illness. Yeah. I probably would have made some troubles for her by involving her family right. or encouraging her to involve her family. Um, yeah. There was a debate on um, television a couple nights ago that mm -hmm. included Ira Bayak, who mm -hmm. used to work here, mm -hmm. saying that you should never do this. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that there's always some better path mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, I don't know if you saw it. I've talked with Ira many times, and Ira knew this woman, uh, actually. He would, he would probably debate with her. Yeah. He would debate with her. I think he did, actually. I mean, he didn't. she didn't tell him she was going to do it, but they talked. She was a member of the Hemlock Society. Mm -hmm. I mean, lots of other things. Um, I mean, part of the problem of the of the notion of palliative care is that um, if we can shift our self perception, right, if we can move from I am independent person to holder of family stories, right? I still have an identity, but it's not the identity I used to have. That that things can get better. There can be meaning and richness, no matter how. Uh, how sad someone is. However, I have a very hard time arguing with somebody who says, I've added up the pros and I've added up the cons, and the effort that would be involved in getting to a place of meaning is, ain't going to happen fast enough for me or isn't worth it. I'd like to just, um, I think if I were to ask her more questions about what we could do to help her, and yeah provide her with additional medication for i.e. potential depression, potential whatever. All we're adding is more drugs for her to stockpile, for her mm -hmm. to potentially just do what she did anyways. Right. I, I, I completely agree. Um, in this case, I, she wasn't depressed. So what would we, what would, what would I mean, they I have could have said, we're going to put you on an SSRI and see if three months from now you still feel like you would want to end your life at the point when you can't do X, Y, or Z. I think the chances of that being any different were, were negligible because she sure didn't seem like a person who was making this decision from a depressed or pathological place. In order to stockpile that type of medication, mm -hmm. Was she giving some physician a list of symptoms that weren't true, or how did Over she Over the years, she had gone in and said she had more pain than she did, 
or she got prescribed medications and only took a few mm -hmm. and then kept kept the rest. I don't know. She didn't say in the letter how long she'd been stockpiling it for. Yeah. It's fairly easy to stop. I mean, we yeah. go to a dentist for a procedure and right. they give you a 30-day, 30 30 30 30-pill <laughs> prescription, you only use one. Yeah. Okay, this is E.H. <laughs> E.H. is a 90-year-old woman, a former librarian, and an amateur actress and writer. She lives in an assisted living facility near her son and his family. She's lived there for three years. She's alert and oriented and she participates in a variety of book groups and gatherings arranged by the facility where she lives. She's bright, cheerful, playful, and a good friend to many of the other residents. Everybody wants to sit with her in the dining room. <laughs> so without any cognitive impairment, she's increasingly frail. Her vision is deteriorating, and she can no longer read. She's frequently bothered by dizziness and has fallen a few times, resulting in ED transfers. She walks with a walker, her weight has been slowly declining. I need to move quickly. She tells you that she wants to stop eating and drinking and to die. She asks you for help. She says that over the past three years, she's watched numerous other residents gradually decline, losing their independence and dignity, and she deeply wants to avoid that. She has also seen the burden and financial hardship this decline has imposed on families and loved ones, and she tells you it's very important to, for her to leave some of her money to her family and she's worried that her health issues will make that impossible. She tells you that her father, she tells you that her father's suicide many years earlier caused deep distress and hardship to all her family, and she hates suicide. She does not consider her plan to be suicide in any way. She reports a deep faith in God and is confident that there is something good coming on the other side. I just have no idea what it is. Okay. Would this be suicide? Uh, as a palliative care coordinator, I'd like to recommend that you help her fill out a post form. <laughs> Good. We did that. <laughs> and if you can imagine what her answers were, right? Absolutely. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. I don't think it would be suicide. Why not? Uh, there's no act intentionally trying to end or terminate the life. It's a withdrawal of action more on her part. So some people make the distinction between the withdrawal of medical interventions and food and drink. So there are people who consider this an intentional act with the intention of ending death, uh, ending life. Uh, <clears throat> but most people think that suicide is an action rather than a withdrawal and so do not consider this suicide. Is this pathological? Doesn't seem like it, but more conversation. Sure. Course. Legal? I think so. Yeah. So the point here is that the medical literature, the ethical literature, and the legal literature makes a very big distinction between an act of doing something to someone versus the withdrawal of something that's already being done. We do not scrutinize with anywhere near. Uh, the level we've talked about so far, if someone says, I want to stop my tracheostomy in my ventilator, I want to stop tube feeds, I want to stop dialysis, we ask them, we make sure that they're consistent, that they understand the consequences of this decision, we probably ask them to say it again on another occasion, but we do not put them through anywhere near the level that we talked about with the physician-assisted suicide. And the same, to some degree, applies with the withdrawal of food and drink. You can say, I don't want something, and we really have an obligation, both ethically and medically, to only override your wishes in very extreme circumstances. So we make a big distinction with here. It may be pathological, and we want to intervene it, but, but our threshold is lower. Is this legal? Yes. Anybody can say no to anything. And in fact, if we forced someone to do something, we could be brought up on charges. We'd need to be very careful there. What do you do? Much of the same thing that we've talked about. Interesting story here. This woman was, I don't want to say depressed, 
She was active and engaged, but she felt purposeless. She could not get out. She could not engage. When this happened, she suddenly got a mission. And the mission was that she wanted the other people in her community to know that they had an option and that this was one. And you could see. She blossomed. She blossomed. <laughs> <laughs> So this is voluntary stopping of eating and drinking. It is the voluntary and deliberate refusal to eat and drink by a competent and capacitated person with the primary intention of hastening death. The intention is to die. The procedure is to refuse food and drink. The successful outcome is death. It is not the relief of suffering. Okay. <laughs> okay, we'll go quickly. Then the next two cases are related. <clears throat> MJ is a retired Police officer, 71, he lives with his wife. He has three children from a previous marriage whom he sees occasionally. 18 months ago, he was diagnosed with lung cancer metastatic to his brain and liver. He has been treated with palliative chemotherapy and radiation, and until recently, his quality of life, function, and independence were relatively high. Four months ago, he developed extreme back and leg pain and was found to have metastatic disease to his spine. The pain wakes him frequently through the night, such that he's not had a good night's sleep in weeks. He's unable to walk more than short distances due to the pain. He's been hospitalized numerous times for this and treated with increasing doses of multiple opioids, steroids, and anti-epileptics. He's had radiation to the spine and an intrathecal analgesic pump was implanted. At times, these interventions have led to very brief periods of relief, but each time the pain recurs. His affect, which was previously upbeat and energetic, is downcast and exhausted. He says, this needs to end, and he asks for your help. Would this be suicide? What would the help be, though? He's asking you what you could do. So he's, I mean, he's, he's saying it needs to end. Depends on what you're going to do, right? You could, right. I mean, clearly, if you're going to try another opioid or another injection, that's not suicide. But would help, would taking steps which would lead to his death be suicide, I guess is the question. Uh, I don't believe it would be. If you were to give him some recommendations, maybe stop his chemo and put him on hospice, we could go the route of finding out what his goals of care are and potentially meet him to have a happy, uneventful end of life. How would pending, you believe his suffering? Pending his pain. Pending his pain. But how, if, if he put him on hospice, and maybe he is on hospice or not, but how would we relieve his suffering? Well, we could put him on pain medication that he could self-administer or... Uh, family could give to him a uh, fentanyl patch something for pain control but we've tried him on numerous other medications both oral IV intrathecal radiation nothing has worked so Dan I'm thinking yeah. this may this may be leading down the path towards palliative sedation potentially in this guy absolutely right so this is in the interest of time this is palliative sedation this is not suicide. This is <clears throat> the lowering of a terminally ill patient's consciousness using sedating medications with the intent of limiting awareness and suffering when suffering is otherwise intractable and intolerable. Right? So the key here is the intent. This individual has a limited prognosis and suffering for which we have tried everything we can possibly think of to find a way for them to be alert and out of discomfort. And we have, at this point, said we have, we have exhausted all reasonable possibilities. The only way to relieve suffering is to put this person to sleep. Mm -hmm. The after effect of putting them to sleep is they will not eat and drink and they will die. But our intention is not for them to die. Our intention is for them to be out of suffering. That is, that is the principle of double effect, which is sort of at the heart of this, of this intervention. What your intention is, is the key here. And that the, the, the secondary effect 
is not the key principle. This is the primary effect, which is the relief of suffering. There are rare cases where we actually put someone to sleep for a period of time, and then we wake them up again and see. Right? It was just to relieve the suffering because the goal is to relieve suffering. The goal is not for them to, is not to end life. But in most situations when palliative sedation is implemented, we know they will not, there will be no nutrition, there will be no hydration, and they will be getting significantly high doses of sedating medications. We expect them to die in a relatively short period of time. The, the intention is the key here. One more quick case. So this is BP, a former teacher's aide, 60 years old, early onset dementia for the past seven years. Until recently, she lived alone with her husband who helped her with her ADLs. He was loving and attentive. While she could not have meaningful conversations, she enjoyed his company, their outings, talking, taking walks, and mealtimes. Since six months ago, she developed persistent agitation, was hospitalized. Despite numerous medication adjustments and consultations, no regimen has been found which allows her to remain calm and still awake and interactive. For most of the hospitalization, she's been in restraints or a net bed. She repeatedly moans, howls, and cries out, help me, help me. She paces constantly, at times without any awareness of her surroundings, and often walks into walls or furniture, injuring herself. She has steadily been losing weight and shows little interest in eating. Her husband tells you he's at his wit's end with despair, does not know what to do. He loves his wife, does not want to abandon or lose her, but feels that he cannot tolerate watch her, watching her suffer any longer. He tells you that her mother had a similar condition and that he and BP watched her decline and die in deep distress. BP said repeatedly that she would prefer to die rather than have that happen to her, and he asks you what to do. And in the interest of time, I'm going to say this is also palliative sedation, but in this case, we are talking about existential suffering rather than physical suffering. And there is a little controversy because there are those who feel that palliative sedation should really not be implemented in the cases of existential suffering. Certainly, if someone were to come to you and say, I am depressed about my lung cancer, and I want you to end my life because my depression will not lift, you might be very reluctant to say, OK, we're going to put you to sleep. In this case, however, what we ultimately did was we felt that this was suffering that was refractory. It was due to her illness directly. It was a manifestation of her dementia. Everything that could possibly be done had uh, been done to try to relieve it with no persistent effect. She was obviously in agony. Um, and in consultation with actually Peggy and the ethics committee and other providers, we did ultimately administer sedating medications and she died. Um, and was at peace for the first time in about nine months. So quickly here, last. Is there follow-up with the husband after that kind of a scenario? Yes, so she was on hospice. She's been followed up routinely. He's been followed up. I actually saw him. He told me I could tell you. He, it's two years out, and he's moved in with a woman, and he, I, he's, it was, a, deeply unhappy and he's moving on with his life and um, was tremendously grateful uh, to all of us. So how to respond, um, <clears throat> one, clarify the question, make sure you understand what they're asking for, two, reinforce your commitment to the patient and the family. No matter what happens, you will stay with them, you will struggle through this decision dependent, regardless of what is the decision about how you'll act evaluate decision-making capacity, and evaluate for psychiatric illness, things we've already been talking about. Explore the dimensions on multiple levels. This is core of palliative care, I'm sure you all know. Not just the physical aspect, but the emotional aspect, the spiritual aspect, the financial aspect, the familial aspect. What are the things that are causing pain, and are there places that we could make interventions on all of those realms that would relieve suffering? Respond empathically goes without saying. Be aware of your own values, your own emotions. Talk them over with colleagues. Check them at the door as much as possible. 
uh, intensified treatment of potentially reversible causes of suffering, as we just talked about, and maximize all palliative care services that you can. Obey the law, obey the law, obey the law. Um, test for consist consistency, delay, and revisit later. All of these folks, um, we said we're gonna. This is it. We got it. We documented it. We feel it. We're gonna meet again in however long seemed reasonable and compassionate. Offer opportunities to choose differently. Involve and support family and friends. Expand the team. Document carefully and exhaustively for self-protective purposes. I do this always I, with the woman who with, uh, stopped eating and drinking. We asked her, in fact, we insisted that she write a letter. It sat by her door. It was to be read by all anybody, staff, family members. Very clear, they are not doing this to me. I'm doing this of my own choice. If I get delirious and I ask for food and drink, I want you to not give it to me. Um, very, very explicit, very helpful. And it was something that could be shown to families. This is not suicide. I am not doing this from a place of psychiatric illness. That had to do with the anticipating all sorts of problems. I've seen staff sneaking fluids into people. I've seen this, this is an issue that makes people very tense. So trying to think ahead of time of how that can be handled. So you provide teaching to staff if you're in a facility or, or in a hospice facility, a form for exploring their own feelings, and you give them an opportunity to say, this goes against my ethics or my religion or what have you, and they have an opportunity to, to, uh, to not participate. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> Last minute questions or thoughts? Okay, everybody's got to go back to work. Yep. Thank you very much. Thank sure. you. It was great. It was good.